Come, Holy Spirit, fill and use my words and our thoughts, that your word only may be spoken and your word only may be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible with you, you might want to open it up to 1 Peter. We're going to be focusing on chapter 5, which we heard read. And I believe that the, the context and the message of 1 Peter is extremely relevant to us right now. So for context, Peter is writing from Rome in the mid-60s AD to his fellow Christ followers, mainly Gentile believers, living in the area of Asia Minor. He's writing at a period of time when the religion of Christianity had not yet been outlawed by the Roman Empire, but nevertheless, it was a source of derision and a cause for discrimination, both by Gentiles and Jews, against those who followed Jesus. This first generation of believers, not, not just uh, Peter's immediate audience, but the whole first generation of believers, expected Jesus to return within a few short years of his ascension, definitely within their lifetimes. And so when they began experiencing suffering and, and persecution of, of whatever kind, they, they were confused and discouraged. No doubt, many of them wondered, did we get it wrong? Why are we suffering like this? Why are we still down here on earth where loved ones die of illness, where lives are worried, lives are ruined by violence and by gossip, where unbelievers tell lies about us and say that we're disloyal to the government, that we're antisocial and, and even demented because our faith calls us to live so differently from the culture in which we find ourselves. From what Peter says to them, it seems likely that, that they were also questioning what's the point of trying to live holy lives and depriving ourselves of those worldly and sensual pleasures that we enjoyed as believers. So Peter, in his letter, he speaks into their pain and their confusion. And he says to them in, in chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter encourages the family of God to keep God's word, to love one another, to be holy even as God is holy and to suffer for righteousness' sake, keeping themselves innocent of any wrongdoing that would bring justifiable condemnation or punishment. Peter's primary message in his letter is this. Trust the Lord. Submit to him. Live obediently no matter your circumstances. Keep your hope fixed on God's ultimate promise of deliverance. And as we will see further on, and he also says to resist the devil, our spiritual enemy. Suffering is to be expected, Peter reminds us, but it's temporary and it yields great blessings for those who remain steadfast in the faith. And he urges them to do this not as isolated individuals, 
but as a family, a community of faith, supporting, encouraging, helping, and praying for each other. Just as we are seeing our community of faith gather with each other to do those things. God is with you, he says. Christ suffered in the flesh, and he knows what you are going through, and he cares. At this time, many in our church are suffering from an onslaught of tragedies, such as unexpected diagnoses, unimaginable loss and pain, even injury at the hands of those whom we had considered our friends. Like Peter's audience, we can't help but cry out to the Lord, why and where are you, God? We, we see in the news evidence of a current surge of unrest, of violence and tragedy and disease. It seems like one catastrophe follows right after the other. And looking at that, it might seem that we followers of Christ, and in fact, perhaps it is true, that we followers of Christ are no more immune and no less vulnerable to tragedies and disasters than the non-believers around us. Some, particularly non-believers, see that as indication that the God in whom we have placed our faith either doesn't exist or he's powerless or he just doesn't care. We might say, along with the psalmist, Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Being a Christian does not mean that we will experience any fewer hardships than anyone else. And in fact, our faith can actually result in more suffering through disdain, through ridicule, through discrimination and persecution. I'm sure you're aware that there are millions of Christians around the world who are suffering and dying for their faith at this very moment. So how then is our experience of suffering different from that of the non-believer? And how are we to deal with the temptation to just, just live the same way that non-believers around us are living, and, and perhaps as we lived before we came to faith in Christ? Peter tells us that our first and primary response must always be to trust in the Lord and in his goodness. When we've been doing our best to live good and upright lives and, and yet terrible suffering and even death comes among our midst, our natural and immediate human reaction is to ask, why? What have I done to deserve this? Interestingly, when something good happens to us, we never ask that question. But Peter says, in essence, going back to 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, why would you think it's strange that difficult things happen to you? He points to the sufferings of Christ, which should immediately remind us that the only person who's ever lived on earth who truly did not deserve suffering willingly suffered the greatest degradation and the most excruciatingly painful death inflicted upon criminals in his day. Peter concludes that portion by saying, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The second thing that Peter says to do is to be fully submitted to the Lord. In chapter five, verses six to seven, he says, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The word humble here means to submit everything to God, to know that only he has wisdom, only he can understand what is going on, only he can bring good out of all evil. We are to submit to God all of our desires and all of our cares and our pain and our anxiety. We can hand our our pain and our fears and our worries to God because in truth, he cares more than we could possibly imagine. I think sometimes we we tend to hold back from submitting everything to God, afraid to let go for fear of what he might do with what we give to him. I had a friend some years back in a Bible study with me who would always say, I don't want to hear God speaking to me. I'm afraid he's going to tell me to do something I don't want to do. And that's where the trust and the knowing God comes in, knowing that he desires our good even more than we do. Submitting follows believing and trusting. If we're having a hard time doing any of those things, submitting, believing, trusting, we would do well by going back to God's word, reminding ourselves of who he is, of, as Sam said, his promises to us, of his character, and of our ultimate destination to be reunited in heaven with him. Like Job, we may lose our health, our possessions, our positions, and even suffer the loss of our loved ones. But terrible as that may feel, it's a temporary pain. Even if that pain lasts for the rest of our days on earth, and even if those days are many, they are few compared to the endless days we will have with our Lord in heaven where there is no sorrow and no pain, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Yet, submitting in humility to God does not mean that we are to passively accept all suffering and any opposition that comes our way in this world, just tolerating our life on earth and waiting for our ticket out. Not at all. That may be a stereotype that sometimes people put on to Christians, but that is not the Christian faith. Listen to what Peter says we are to do. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Be sober-minded, in other words, be clear-headed with right thinking, not intoxicated or, or deceived by the world or by the flesh, but centered in Christ and grounded in God's word. Then he says, be watchful. What does that mean? Why are we to be watchful? Well, the answer immediately follows. It's because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The imagery here is very clear. This is not some lazy lion kind of relaxing in the sunshine under a tree and if a little antelope comes by, you know, the lion's going to reach out and get it. No, this is a man-eating lion that is not sitting still. It is prowling. It is going around saying, where is prey? Where is a weak one that I can grab a hold of? Some might think that that Peter's just using poetic language here when he speaks of the devil in these terms, like a ravenous man-eating lion. Maybe they'd say he's just creating a metaphor to describe evil in this world. 
But Peter is not a poet. He's a plain speaker, delivering the message that God has given him to deliver. Nor would his audience have ever doubted for a second the very literal meaning of Peter's reference to the devil. They would immediately have thought back to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, where Cain is jealous that the Lord is pleased with the offerings that Abel gives to him, but is not pleased with Cain's offering. The Lord, seeing clearly the jealousy, the hatred, even the murder that is in Cain's heart, says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must overrule it. But as we know from the rest of that story, Cain did not resist it. He gave himself over to jealousy and to covetousness, and he murdered his brother Abel. Now, it's, it's only in our so-called enlightened era that it's considered a sign of low intelligence to believe in an actual devil, to believe that there are personified intelligent beings in this world who seek to disrupt God's plans for his family who he has created in his own image. Maybe you've heard that famous line from the 1995 movie, The, the Usual Suspects. It goes like this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. That is so true. How can we fight an enemy that we don't believe exists? But the fact is we do have an enemy who hates us with a passion and a hatred far greater than anything we can imagine. If we do not actively resist the devil, we will fall to his ways. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The Apostle James says almost the exact same thing in his letter, chapter four, verse seven. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice that sequence. Peter says, humble yourselves before God, submit to God, then resist the devil. James likewise tells us, first submit to God and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. So many Christians know the second part of that phrase. They say, oh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You have no power in yourself to cause the enemy to flee. It is only in our being yoked to Jesus Christ. It is in our being submitted to his lordship that Satan trembles and fears. Satan is not afraid of little old you or me, but he is very afraid of the spirit of God that resides in you when you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It's worth noting here that the devil is out to get us in either one of two ways, and, and usually both. He wants to make us the victim of suffering, but he also wants to make us the perpetrator of evil or of suffering. When Cain killed Abel, two lives were destroyed. But in one case, only the body was destroyed. In the other, the devil took hold, whether temporarily or permanently, we don't know. Apart from God in us, and us in God through Jesus, we have no power to successfully resist the devil or his plans for destruction in our lives. We see that clearly in our society, as our society has moved farther and farther away from biblical truths and the Christian faith, our culture, our own country, 
has fallen further and further into violence, into degradation, into corruption. In the face of suffering, in the face of terrible loss, in the face of unimaginable tragedies and wickedness, we are to turn to the Lord for strength and comfort. But we're also to submit ourselves to the Lord, resisting the temptation to doubt his goodness or the truth of his word, resisting the temptation to say, as the world says mockingly, where is your God now? And we are to submit ourselves in resistance to the devil. Peter's fellow apostle, Paul, describes very clearly the nature of our enemy and how we are to resist. You might be familiar with that passage in Ephesians chapter six, where Paul makes clear that he's talking about a literal evil entity. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty clear to me. And so Paul tells us how to put on our spiritual armor, the characteristics of God and of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and tells us, he concludes by saying, and pray at all times. We pray, we wield that sword that Paul talks about, the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. And when we, filled with the Holy Spirit, standing in the truth of Jesus Christ, wield that sword, we can defeat our enemy. We may see that victory right in front of us in the material, or we may not really appreciate that victory until we get to the other side, but we stand in victory. We have to ask ourselves, am I really submitted to God? And I, am I ready to hand over to God everything that means anything to me? Am I ready to hand over to him my desires for my life, my desires for my loved one's lives, my possessions? Are we standing on God's word? Are we praying at all times in the spirit? Are we waging spiritual warfare? Spiritual warfare is a term that kind of makes some people nervous. It should not make you nervous, brothers and sisters. It should make you confident. As Paul says, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus promised in that verse in Matthew, when Peter confesses his faith, Jesus says that he is forming on that rock, on that rock of statement of faith in Christ, he is building his church and the gates of hell, nothing that comes out of the bowels of hell is going to prevail against it. So we sorrow, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. And we trust in the Lord. We remain faithful to his word. We submit ourselves to him and we resist the devil both through keeping constantly aware of our own sins that we might confess them and the devil not get hold of us through them and by resisting him through prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you made us for yourself and that we are yours. That you did not leave us to sin or to brokenness, but that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, 
to redeem us. And you have filled us as believers with your Holy Spirit that we never enter into these circumstances and these times on our own, but you are always with us. Comfort us, strengthen us, incline our hearts to be even more submitted to you. Show us, Lord, those sins that we need to confess and strengthen us when we have submitted to you to resist the devil that he will flee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.